I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to our first World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman, the FT's Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator. And most weeks I'll be presenting this podcast, aided by Helen Worrell, who's here in the studio with me. Hi, Helen. Hello. Each week, we'll be focusing on some of the major international political stories that are making the headlines, and we'll be drawing upon the FT's team of foreign correspondents and international analysts to make sense of world events. This week, we're turning our attention to labour unrest in China and the start of the World Cup in South Africa. And we'll also hear from one of our correspondents in Berlin, Quentin Peel, who's been looking at the decreasing popularity of Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel. The problem for her is that she's not got very deep roots in the party. She was brought up in East Germany, so she came into the political game relatively late. But first to China. The past few weeks have seen a surge in labour unrest in the industrial heartlands of southern China, with high-profile strikes at Honda and a rash of suicides at Foxconn, one of the major producers of electronic goods for Western consumer markets. Now, I'm joined by Richard McGregor, who's a former Beijing bureau chief for the FT and author of a new book on the Chinese Communist Party. Richard, from your long experience of China, how serious is this labor unrest? Well, I think it's more serious politically than it is economically. I mean, the higher wages in China are not a bad thing. Many in the central government would support that. It is, in fact, totally in keeping with central government policy for a decade uh, for consumption to play a greater role in, in the economy. The biggest problem in China at the moment is, is incomes are too low. So that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. But what is really bad from the central government's perspective is the way in which it's happening. You know, Honda, the Honda factory in southern China is not some kind of back alley uh, sweatshop. It's a world-class factory. If it's like any of the other Japanese factories I've been to in China, it's spotless. So obviously it's easy to target the Japanese in China. But if you've got industrial action at Honda, at Foxconn, the biggest factory town in China, the biggest, probably the world in that case, and if it's... Give us an idea of the scale of Foxconn. What well, Foxconn are we is about? like a city. It's 270,000 people who eat, live, sleep, work in, and, and in the one place. all the consumer well, goods they, they produce the, uh, the, the iPad, the iPhone, uh, HP. They're a Taiwanese company, and they're the assembler of choice for top-class Western consumer electronics goods. It's a very important factory. So China's always had labor unrest, but if you've got labor unrest at some of the, the best and biggest factories in the country, I think that takes it potentially to another level. And you say that the government is concerned about the political implications because obviously this is a form of mass activity that they're not entirely in control of. How are they handling it? Are they using the male fist, the velvet glove, a bit of both? Well, it's always a bit of both. I mean, you can tell it's important for the central government because they're blocking news about it. That's always a telltale sign of what they think, what worries them. China is very used to handling protests, and they don't usually go in with the truncheons. They usually try and buy people off and, uh, you know, take the leaders aside. And that's, in some respects, what's happening now. But what they are worried about is if there's any level of organisation. The Communist Party abhors any political competition. And if they see this spreading in an organised fashion, then we will see the, the mailed fist. 
Yeah, no, it was interesting because I was in Hong Kong last week and, of course, it was the anniversary of the June the 4th, the suppression of the Tiananmen Square massacre and that was took place in 1989 and everybody was thinking, well, what was the difference between what happened in China and what happened in Eastern Europe in 1989? Why did the two places take different paths? And just thinking about it, it seemed to me that one of the big differences in, was that in Poland, which actually had elections, first free elections the same day of Tiananmen Square, well, what led the rebellion in Poland, a trade union movement? Yes, well, that's why the Communist Party has always ensured there's a single official legal trade union in China which comes under the Communist Party. No other sort of independent labor organization is permitted, and that's a very a very good reason because once you know workers turn into an old-fashioned proletariat, then the, the ruling class, be they a Communist Party, has got a problem. What about the economic implications? Because, again, you know, Hong Kong, very economic city, so everybody was thinking, well, you know, can, can Foxconn actually afford these 30% increases in wages that they're giving? I think Honda's now even higher. And, OK, maybe they've got very high margins, but China's selling point to the rest of the world is we can do it cheaper. Will they still be able to do it cheaper after these wage rises? I'm a little more sanguine about that. I think the issue of cheap wages in China has always been over-exaggerated. China isn't just about cheap wages. It's about the ports, the highways, the managers, the whole setup, the whole logistics. I mean, you know, the, the issue is how to get a shirt on a shelf in Walmart at a certain level of quality on a certain day and a certain size and a certain price. Now, cheap wages are just one part of that. Chinese are the best of the world in that. The whole of the workshop of the world can't, you know, suddenly pack up one day and move across the border to Vietnam. So there's so a kind of clustering effect. There's a cluster. Margins will be squeezed. Uh, it might be mildly inflationary in China, but it's far too early to say that this is going to be a big, you know, really hurt them economically, particularly as China, like other countries, even more so, can get productivity increases, which takes the sting out of it. And why is this happening now? I mean, the Chinese labour force... Oh, I did talk to Chinese labour people in Hong Kong, and they said, oh, actually, there have been strikes for ages. You know, it's not entirely new. But there was also a sense that perhaps there's a generational change in China, that the old workforce who, you know, had a peasant mentality and were basically grateful for whatever they could get and fairly subservient are being replaced by a new, younger generation who might be a bit sort of tougher in, in fighting for their their rights. Is that how you see it? Well, it's a good question. I think it's been coming, but it was certainly, you know, the Chinese economy collapsed at the end of 2008 along with the Western economies, but now after the big stimulus, it's come back again very strongly. So what we had a labour surplus two years ago, the labour market is tightening. So this is the moment when the tightening market, labour market meets greater expectations. I think that's the best explanation I can come up with. The other thing is that obviously this change in labour force has changed the balance of power between workers and the companies. Is there anything else that you think has helped to shift that balance? Over time, I think a worker in the Yangtze River Delta near Shanghai probably now knows what's going on at the factory in southern China better than they've ever known before. Even if it's suppressed on the media, it can seep around the internet. They can. So it's just better communication. I think there's better communication uh, is, is perhaps the best example and also raised expectations. This government, which has been in power for eight, nine years, has been talking for eight, nine years that saying to the workers, we're on your side, you deserve a better deal. And you know, some people are probably finally saying, well, here we are, give it to us. Richard, thanks very much indeed. Now, after China, the world's largest exporter is Germany. In the, indeed, as far as I know, the Germans only ceded this title to the Chinese a few months ago. And you might think that this strong economic base would lead to political contentment in Germany, but apparently not a bit of it. The German government, led by Chancellor Angela Merkel, is deeply unpopular at the moment. Earlier today, one of the FT's World News editors, Fiona Simon, spoke to Quentin Peel, our Berlin bureau chief, about what's been happening to Germany's Chancellor. 
Last autumn, Angela Merkel won quite convincingly the, the German elections and put together a strong coalition. But recently she's been losing popularity. Where did she go wrong? Well, I think right from the start, this coalition has proved to be much more difficult than she expected. It's a centre-right coalition with the her Christian Democrats and the Free Democrats who are more liberal, and it's what she wanted. But the Free Democrats have been very difficult partners, and they've been squabbling ever since very publicly. The problem for Mrs. Merkel, I think, is she's not the sort of chancellor who leads from the front. She likes to let the debate work itself out. And here is this government surrounded by unprecedented problems. And although she's still very popular in Germany in traditional terms, her popularity rates are up around 50%, which most politicians would be very happy with. Nonetheless, it's this perception that she's not leading from the front that I think is damaging her. How threatening to her is the criticism that she's received from within her own party? The problem for her is that she's not got very deep roots in the party. She was brought up in East Germany, so she came into the political game relatively late, all right, nearly 20 years ago. But nonetheless, she doesn't have that sort of parents in the party, family in the party, roots in the party that she can exploit. And so there's always been a bit of suspicion of her from the conservative side of the Christian Democratic Union, that it's mostly male, it's more Roman Catholic than it is Protestant, and she's a Protestant. So she's still seen as something of an outsider. And I think that is always her problem. Against that, she's been able to put the fact that she is popular outside the party, and there's no real alternative inside the party. So I don't think there's a threat to her position, but I think she's finding the constant squabbling, both from her party and within the coalition, very tiring. And her instinct would be to actually move slightly towards the left wing of her party. That's where her own heart lies. What's your view of Angela Merkel as austerity champion? I think she is fundamentally a pragmatist. She doesn't have a big vision thing. Uh, but at the same time, she knows it's popular to get government spending under control in Germany. It goes very deep in the German soul that there shall be no inflation, that there shall not be big government debts. And if she rides that horse, then actually it's one that will revive her popularity. That was Quentin Peel in Berlin talking earlier today. Well, perhaps the last time Germany felt really good about itself was exactly four years ago when the country hosted the World Cup. Now, of course, the World Cup is opening this weekend in South Africa. It's South Africa's turn to search for that footballing feel-good factor. And Helen, you've been thinking about this. Well, yes, Gideon, I understand that you're actually going to the World Cup. And I suppose my first question would be, what sort of World Cup are South Africa trying to promote this time round? Because the 95 Rugby World Cup was about sort of coming out of apartheid. What do you think the theme is going to be this time? I think that they want to present themselves as a successful modern society. The one thing the South Africans are paranoid about is the idea that the rest of the world thinks they're going down the pan, that crime is too high, the economy's crumbling, that the political system is some way under threat, that it's a frightening, dangerous place. And they want to show the world that actually South Africa's a great place, that it's first world, it's efficient, it's safe. So they see this as a crucial opportunity to turn 
their image around. And therefore, in that sense, the stakes are really quite high for the South Africans. If there are sort of a couple of high-profile crime incidents, somebody famous gets mugged or killed, if the lights go out, they've got serious power problems, that would be seen not just, you know, as a kind of a bit of a setback, as it might be in other countries, but as a real kind of disaster for South Africa. But conversely, to be a bit more upbeat about it, if the whole thing goes really smoothly, if the foreigners who visit the country come away speaking very warmly of it, then I think that will be regarded as a huge success. Well, yes, I mean, you're mentioning the importance of security and having a a well-run World Cup. I mean, in your opinion, is South Africa actually ready for this? Because it's been reported today that foreign journalists have been robbed at gunpoint in Magaliesburg. Do you think security is just going to be a problem that dogs the, the games? It's, t- it's hard to tell. It's certainly the case that people kind of work themselves up about crime in South Africa. Most people will be fine. What is the case, though, is that they will be devoting all the resources they can to making sure that the routes to the stadiums, the main hotels, the fan fest areas are safe. The problem they might have is if people sort of wander off the reservation and football fans tend to get drunk. I, you know, I went to the Germany World Cup games go into overtime, they finish at midnight even in Germany there wasn't that much public transport around at one in the morning, a lot of people wandering around, so that's where I think you you could have problems I mean another issue especially that the FT has reported about is the inequality that's existing in South Africa but there have been some concerns that preparations for the World Cup could actually increase those inequalities because campaigners have been saying that um, the need to clear large areas of land for stadiums and new runways have led to street traders and farmers being expelled. Do you think this could be a, a problem? I mean, is, is, is there a, a downside? It's the kind of debate that, that World Cups throw up. I mean, I think it's particularly pointed in South Africa because this is, you know, it's, it's a strange country. In some ways, it's a very wealthy country. It's sitting on the world's largest gold reserves. There's a lot of rich people living in South Africa, but it's also a developing country with a lot of poverty, very high unemployment. And so inevitably there are questions about, hang on, you know, you've got limited resources, you've got uh, a lot of people living in, in a very substandard housing, healthcare problems, education problems, and you're spending hundreds of millions of pounds on football stadiums. So th- there is a question about South Africa's priorities. I think the government's response would be, yeah, but this is a massive marketing opportunity of the sort we were talking about earlier. This is also, in a way, an opportunity to bring joy to a lot of South Africans. Sports crazy, football crazy society. My last question is, which match do you think will spark the most diplomatic tension? Do you think it'll be Portugal versus Brazil, US, UK, North Korea versus pretty much anyone? (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I've got tickets for Portugal-Brazil, so that that is the Portuguese-speaking derby. It'll, It'll be a big football occasion. As far as I know, they actually get on with each other reasonably well, so that should be okay. The US-UK will be an interesting one, or US-England, to be accurate, uh, because, of course, you know, we, we're meant to be the best of mates generally, but there's huge tensions now between Britain and uh, and America over the BP oil spill. Uh, and then, of course, there's there's North Korea, who is the the only member of the access of evil, if I can use President Bush's term, to, uh, to make it to the World Cup. Bizarre, because, of course, they're hermetically sealed society. The last time they were in a World Cup was 1966. Now, they are, perhaps inappropriately, given the state of human rights uh, in that country, they're in what's known as the group of death. They're with uh, Brazil, Ivory Coast, Portugal. Very unlikely that they make it out. But if they were by some chance to play South Korea in the next round. South Korea is also in the World Cup. Now, that would be a game that would be well worth watching and also well worth policing. I think even I might watch that one, actually. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for this week. 
Next week, we'll be watching out for developments at the latest European Union summit as the EU struggles to keep a lid on its financial crisis. All that's left now is for me to thank Richard and Gideon and also Quentin and Fiona. And thank you for listening. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.